This call is being recorded. A little bit of housekeeping. Sorry, I just hit the record button so we can hop on um, so that we can distribute the call afterwards, uh, which we do every week. Um, we have a new email address, uh, oz at rccblaw.com. That's oz at rccblaw.com. Uh, we're hoping that'll make it a little bit easier for you all to send in your questions. Um, we're fielding them, so you know we'll, we'll talk for maybe 20 minutes, and then uh, if, if and when we get some questions throughout, we'll, we'll pop them in, and we'll have a question and answer session at the end, too. Um, so with that, I guess let's let's kick off. So I guess maybe the maybe the first thing again, these proposed regs came out a couple of weeks ago, um, and I know Brian, uh, you know, we talked about offline a lot of the modeling that that you guys are doing over at GMS Surgeon. Um, can you tell us a little bit about you know what that typically looks like, how how the modeling works, and uh, you know how the opportunity fund benefits build into kind of a typical IRR real estate projection that y'all would do. Sure. Um, thanks, Dustin and Layla. Happy to be part of the call. The um, the base uh, uh, model that we are working with have been working with in response to our clients' uh, request is to compare a real estate deal that is inside a qualified opportunity zone and com compared to a, a real estate deal that's outside. So same financial assumptions, same projections, what are the tax benefits when it is inside a zone? And the basic benefits are, uh, as we discussed in, in prior calls, uh, the idea that uh, the tax, the investor gets a deferral on the amount of tax or the tax that they would normally pay on the capital gain that they're investing in the fund. So there's a, uh, a deferral benefit there. Uh, then of course, if they have a five-year hold, they have a 10% benefit haircut on the on the uh, increase in basis and haircut on the on the amount of tax that they would pay an additional five percent at seven years and then if they hold it for 10 years so they they get an exclusion on any gain uh, that would happen during the life of the asset um, <clears throat> so those base assumptions and they result in a relatively straightforward computation of the tax benefit of investing in a in a QOZ fund. It's pretty straightforward as long as the assumptions are limited. So there are plenty of uh, uh, examples out there that would indicate that, uh, and illustrations that would indicate that an 8% pre-tax return uh, uh, would, would uh, result in a corresponding after-tax return of 6% if it was outside of a zone. That would uh, generate as much as a 9% tax after tax uh, IRR if it was inside a qualified opportunity zone and then those numbers change depending on the uh, the, uh, the 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 base level IRR so for example a 15% after tax IRR may result in a 20% after tax IRR for a deal that's inside a zone so this is pretty straightforward and it's true um, all those benefits do do uh, shake out what what we've been struggling with and concerned about and we're hoping to get some clarity in the proposed regulations we got some clarity but we didn't get it all clarified uh, but the question is is what happens with investments like you mentioned real estate that generate losses and distributions that are passed out to investors during the life of the investment unfortunately the proposed regs didn't uh, kind of left us hanging on that but we have made some assumptions in our model and 
our modeling and those assumptions are that as long as there's qualified non-recourse deal uh, debt in the deal uh, that's going to allow the uh, investors to to take those losses of course if they have other passive income to offset them and also receive distributions without any tax implications during the lifetime of the investment um, however what we do recognize that if those losses that are passed out are passed out are utilized and those distributions are are given to the investors there's going to be some type of recapture at the exit of the investment we're not sure exactly at what rate but uh, if there wasn't any form of recap recapture our models illustrate that there would be somewhat of a double dip um, in the uh, the increase in basis uh, as well as um, uh, that's given just based on the um, the regulations as they stand now so yeah, hopefully no, we get some clarity Go, ahead. Uh, go uh I think that's that's spot on. You know, the models are really useful, but but even at this point, you know, prior to the proposed regs, maybe we knew, you know, 50% of the rules. Now we maybe know 75% of the rules. But a lot of the rules, particularly they're going to drive um, you know, economic performance like use of losses and and the ability to refinance and take out cash to your point Ryan are still uh, a little bit unknown. Um but uh but it sounds like your models maybe show um, you know, the results on base, almost like a conservative basis to say, well, there's going to be recapture. Um, you know, you'll be able to use the losses, but what, when can you use the losses in your model? After after the basis um, step up in 2026? No, we have it, um, <laughs> we have it both ways. Actually, we've had to model it two ways. One would be utilizing the losses. Again, as long as there's qualified non-recourse debt, uh, uh -huh. Even though the investor doesn't have basis in in the equity because they haven't paid tax on the the uh, uh, the rolled over uh, gain, um, we have one model that illustrates that they do get to utilize the losses because of the uh, because of the uh, the debt. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And and that, the same goes for distributions. Um, uh, and I can give you a. a a non-real estate example where the opposite happens and in an operating entity um, which we're modeling right now which illustrates um, uh, its debt financed but the investors do not have any recourse debt and they don't have any qualified non-recourse debt that would otherwise give them the ability to utilize the losses but in that case the losses are suspended and not suspended due to passive activity rules, but suspended due to basis rules, because they don't have basis in the, their investment until right. um, either, you know, until 2026 when they pay tax. Um, in that situation, uh, there's it's twofold. Number one, they wouldn't be able to utilize the losses, we don't believe, but also any distributions that happen prior to them having basis could perhaps be considered to be distributions in excess of basis and taxed, uh, you know, capital gain rates, but taxed during the life of the asset. Yeah, so that's something yeah, no, we're we working should, with right now. We should certainly circle back to that because we're getting a lot of questions on on you know the use of opportunity funds for for more operating businesses 
I think, you know, a lot of people first thought real estate is kind of a classic good example and, and probably what, you know, the government primarily thought of when they put this program in. But, you know, people are getting more creative and interested in using this for operating businesses. So, so let's talk about that in a moment. But but I guess back to your point, Brian, about, uh, about you know, the pass-through depreciation deductions with respect to debt. Um, you know, Layla and I have been working with a group of lawyers uh, with the ABA tax section on... Um, sending the IRS comments on the proposed regs, you know, where they're unclear, where they need to push a little bit further, um, and hopefully, you know, in a way that, that makes uh, good policy sense, but also provides investors certainty. So, so Layla's been involved in that very issue, right, Layla? Yeah, so, you know, if we focus on this issue where we're worried about whether investors in a partnership that invests in real estate can assume essentially the normal operation the normal tax rules would would be operative you know it's, as you pointed out Brian the the code provides that you have zero basis in the interest in the fund except for when you have you know the 5 year hold the 7 year hold and the 10 year hold met and you get these statutory steps up in basis zero zero basis in the rolled capital gain portion right because there's a yes. provision that says you can put in cash and, and get full basis and have sort of a normal real estate investment right so what that does is it segregates your investment into two pieces if you rolled in capital gain then that is your qof investment and then you rolled in an additional or, i'm sorry you you invested an additional amount that is not rolled in that is segregated by the code um, as a non-TOF investment. And rather than address the question of the basis rules for uh, partnership investments in QOF head-on, what the regulations do is they, they look at the Section 752 rule in the code, which... Um, it gives you basis allocated to each partner based on what's determined to be their allocable share of the partnership debt. And they they look at this rule and they what they say is not that it applies. They seem to assume that it applies. And then they say that the amount of debt allocated to a partner under Section 752 doesn't affect the portion of that partner's investments that are QOF investments versus their non-QOF portion. So again, you know, we were looking for a straightforward, clear statement that hopefully normal partnership basis rules apply, that you get basis when you have income, that you get basis when you have debt allocated to you as a partner. And so it's a really critical issue, as Brian pointed out, that, you know, a, a typical developer is going to have the initial debt, and then often there's a refinance to essentially cash out investors. And that can usually be sheltered with basis from that debt. And if it's not, then you have this weird system where you could have tax on these distributions that, that wouldn't occur in a non-QOF fund. It, Layla, is one of the comments that um, your committee is working for, you know, seeking more certainty on on what the proposed regs seem to say on that point? Yeah, well, we're we're still discussing what these um, comments will will say, but you know, I I intend to push pretty hard that that we should be really asking for 
an explicit statement that partnership basis rules apply. Yeah, yeah. With respect to uh, to to non-recourse debt and recourse debt. Sure. The, yeah. yeah, the normal okay. rules. So if you have recourse, that does recourse to a partner or, or guaranteed by a partner, that partner should get the debt. And if you have qualified non-recourse debt, it's allocated proportionally among the partners, typically. Yeah. Um, let's shift focus maybe a little bit and, and circle back to, to something Brian raised uh, uh, offhand with respect to kind of operating businesses, right? So, you know, you want to expand or open uh, a new operating business. And when I say operating business, I mean uh, not a real estate development type project or a real estate rehab. Um, you know, some of the challenges with respect to operating businesses that are not so prevalent for real estate investments are, you know, um, how you're going to apply that balance sheet test, right? And, and when I say balance sheet test, um, you know, inside of a subsidiary of a qualified opportunity fund, which which these, um, you know, operating businesses are probably going to look like, the rules are a little bit less flexible and more constraining if an opportunity fund itself ran a business rather than through a subsidiary. Um, you know, the rule under the proposed regs is that substantially all of the tangible assets in the business need to be uh, used in its own, right? Um, and there's some other rules like less than 5% of the uh, assets on that company's balance sheet can be comprised of financial assets. Um, so, uh, you know, with respect to good assets, bad assets, Layla, do you have any kind of thoughts on, you know, how you would look at that test for an operating business? I guess, I guess particularly given that, um, that the ABA comments you're working on um, touch on some of the original use versus uh, substantial improvement rules and stuff like that in this context? Sure. So, um, the the proposed regulations don't address as many issues for the original use and substantial improvement prong of the test that as as there are so there are a lot of unanswered questions still some interesting things that um well I, let me just take a step back and explain how that prong works the rules require property to be purchased for original use or if the the use is not original then the property must be substantially improved, which means expending an amount on the improvements that's equal to the cost of the property. And that that has to be property that's held directly by a qualified opportunity fund to, for that to be good property. And it also applies uh, for the lower tier entity, a joint venture or portfolio company that has to meet what we now see as a 70% test it's the same test to, to treat these assets as good assets, um, the original use or substantial improvement test. So um, the regulations and, and the revenue ruling that accompanied them provide that land would never meet the test for original use, which perhaps is not shocking. Um, that, that seems like... Uh, it's been around a while. Yeah. Land. Um, <laughs> so they also provide, though, that they're not requiring the land itself to be substantially improved, and that's pretty helpful. So think of an example where a qualified opportunity fund purchases land with a building on it for $100 and you know an appropriate allocation of value between the land and the building itself is 50-50. So now instead of having to spend $100 on improvement, substantial improvement under the proposed regulations only requires an expenditure of $50. So that is a pretty taxpayer favorable rule for, you know, how you're treating land as, as an asset going into this balance sheet. Um, and, you know, they've, they've come short of providing 
explicitly that the land is a good asset when you do these tests, but it's implied in the revenue ruling especially. Yeah, yeah, but when you when you start to apply those types of rules to um, operating businesses, you know, it becomes a little bit less clear how you would do that, right? So, you know, if, if I open a manufacturing business inside of an opportunity fund, I'm sorry, inside of an opportunity zone, you know, if I buy all new equipment, that would that would seem to be pretty clearly original use, right? Right. So, so an operating business becomes very interesting when you talk about what substantial improvement means. If you're if you're buying, you know, assume you buy the assets of an operating business and you want to grow it within the zone, the regulation, the code doesn't say anything, and the regulations don't say anything about exactly how you substantially improve a collection of assets that you've acquired. So. Um, one thing that I'm pushing really hard for in these comments is a rule that gives guidance allowing you to aggregate assets that are part of a business. So if you have vehicles and equipment and a building as part of the business, you know, you shouldn't have to improve the vehicles themselves because why should the why should the qualified opportunity zone rules require you to throw away money in a fairly useless manner. Um, it, it would be much more sensible to say within the discretion of the business operator and, and the owners, the investors, do an overall improvement of the total business assets, you know, whether it's acquiring new components or improve, you know, in some cases making actual improvements to the property. Um, it, it's just a, a sensible approach that I think you know the IRS just hadn't been and Treasury hadn't been thinking about. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that I think that's right. The government, like, like you know, uh, probably more more taxpayers in the beginning was looking at this as a real estate program, um, and people, you know, interested in using it as a creative way to uh, to you know acquire an operating business are really you know pushing the government to go that way. And I think you're right. You know, if if you start to parse assets. Um, you know, what becomes a good asset and a bad asset for, for purposes of, of, you know, the substantially all the tangible assets need to be uh, qualified opportunity business property, um, you're going to fall under that 70% test pretty quickly, right? If you start going, you know, the car is a bad asset, but the counters are a good asset, or, right. you know, the, the desks are a bad asset, and, and the, the uh, you know, the desks, the chairs are a good asset, or, or whatever, you know. You're gonna, you get a ridiculous result. You're going to get bad answers, and it's going to be very administratively difficult. So we have some ideas, you know, the team that's working on these comments has some ideas about what would make sense for the way to aggregate um, the assets within a business or, you know, even on a real estate project if if there are, you know, multiple things going on within um, a particular tract of land. Do you have to improve each thing or, or can you aggregate even some pieces of real estate together? Um, but if anyone who's listening has some practical suggestions that would make good business sense and wants to share those with us, we can consider them as we work on these comments. Well, that's that's a great point, and that's that's even more general, right? You know, this uh, the ABA is a very the American Bar Association tax section is a very uh, uh, well respected um, advocacy group. You know, uh, in terms of IRS repu reputation, so. You know, feel free to use us as uh, an advocate. You know, we're in the room at the ABA tax section and, and working on those comments. So, you know, if you have ideas or 
or have thought about issues with respect to how this hits your business, you know, this is a great way to actually get the rules written in a way that helps your business rather than have to, you know, interpret rules that you had no process or no participation with within the process um, in a way that helps your business. So feel free to reach out on that. That's that's a great point, Leo. And and do that quickly because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have a very short time frame in, in which we're turning these comments around, just a few weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we did get one question, um, and it goes back to Brian, and, and put you in the spot a little bit, Brian. Um, the, the request is more of a process question than, than a substantive question, and that is, you know, do you have any kind of uh, example-type models or high-level summary of your model that you'd be willing to share after the call? Yeah, that's, uh, that's the, uh, the question I've been asked several times over the last uh, couple of months, and um, it's very difficult. The, base, the basic examples without losses passed through and without distributions passed through, I can certainly share. The, um, the, the models where, the real life models where the, it's a real estate deal that reflects, or an operating business for that matter, that, that does have losses passing out to its, its uh, limited members along with distributions. The assumptions um, are are such right now that, as Layla pointed out, we were with the debt basis. It's a major assumption, and we've tried to create uh, just very basic models that we could share. And every time we do it, we say, "Well, we need real life examples." So, yep. my answer to that question would be, um, we can we can take a real life example and and pretty quickly model the tax benefits and show after-tax IRR within and without a, and outside of a zone. But it's difficult to to um, it's difficult to share assumptions because there are too or excuse me models because there's too many assumptions and too too it's too uh, specific to a, a deal. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And and you know to your point earlier about you know, a 20% IRR might yield, or a 15% IRR, excuse me, might yield under an opportunity zone something like a 20% benefit versus, you know, an 8% IRR might might yield like a 9% IRR taking into account opportunity funds. It seems like, you know, all that is very, very deal-specific, right, um, and based on deal-specific numbers. So um, I'm sure that if, uh, if, if folks on the call wanted to reach out to you and kind of get a sense of, you know, how that modeling works in with, with their specific facts that, that uh, you'd be open to that, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we have um, we've done several real estate illustrations uh, specific to deals. And uh, um, to your point earlier about operating businesses, we we haven't had the opportunity to do uh, to do that until just recently. And it was very similar to what you described—a very capital intensive, not a manufacturing business, but a very capital intensive business um a startup model even though it cashes cash flows pretty quickly a lot of heavy depreciation in the early years um and generates losses and in our case on the operating uh, operating business um unlike the real estate deal the limited partners would not be guaranteeing any debt so they wouldn't have any debt basis so those losses would be kind of hanging out there until they got basis in their equity um and then the uh, my point earlier about the distributions, what happens to the distributions during 
during the life of the investment, during the early years, I should say, before they have basis. Um, we're we're looking at that now, but our our assumption is going to be that they're going to be taxable. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so we're we're just about out of time. Uh, a couple of housekeeping points. Um, thank you for everybody attending, and, and particularly for uh, for Brian from GMS Surgeon, and, and my colleague Layla from Rear Cooper for uh, participating on the call. Um, a little housekeeping. Uh, so one issue that we've um, been getting more and more calls about. And it's it's a complicated question, and it requires some some uh, you know some ex explanation. So we don't want to get into it just on the tail end of this call, but but we're happy to kind of discuss on a future call is you know how to make best use of this um, program for property that a taxpayer had already owned before uh, 2018, because the general rule in the in the opportunity fund statute is that you know to be good property, the property needs to be purchased um, after 2017. And a lot of uh, you know taxpayers had had already invested in these opportunity zones beforehand, so they're they're asking quite frequently how they can get those benefits. And we've given that a lot of thought and uh, and come up with some structures that um, you know a, with a little bit of creativity and deviation from maybe a standard real estate investment might be able to work. Um, so we're going to talk about that on a future call. And then secondly, anybody who wants to um, you know participate as as a uh, on the call itself. This is a great way to kind of reach many, many investors and service providers and uh, developers and everybody in this space. Um, we're happy to talk to you offline if you want to participate and, and see where it goes. Um, so with that, again, thank you, Layla. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, everybody else, for dialing in. And we'll uh, see you in two weeks.